The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Warning. This episode contains foul language, discussions of drug use and murder, and may make you lose hope. The podcast for all things strange, unusual, paranormal, supernatural, creepy, sticky, gross, scary, and everything in between. Each week we get together with one of our friends and we talk about something weird. And sometimes we talk about something super serious and depressing. Like ruining the lives of millions of people. I'm Ashley and I'm joined today by my lovely co-host Lauren, my handsome boyfriend Joe, and an ever-growing distrust of the United States government. Today is our third and final installment of part two of our Conspiracy Theory series, and today Joe is going to be teaching us about the Reagan administration's supposed war on drugs, his involvement in the crack epidemic that hit America hard in the 80s, and the resulting obstruction of justice that we can still see in our country to this day. Just as an extra warning, this episode could, and should, make you very angry. Before we get into it, I just want to give a huge shout out to some other paranormal podcasts that have been super supportive of our show. That's Weird is based out of Portland, Oregon, and get this, okay, That's Weird formed at the exact same time as our show, it features two female hosts, one of whom's name is Ashley, is my age, has a nose ring, bangs, and we even have some of the same clothes. Is that not wild? They are super cool and sweet, and their show is quirky, and every episode will make you say, whoa, that's weird. If you like us, you'll like them, so make sure you check out Ashley and Christy at that's weird cast on Instagram. Not keep it weird cast. That's weird cast. Other pods who we have met and grown to love along the way are Death by Champagne, who also features two lovely ladies, Mackenzie and Olivia, who talk about the occult and true crime, and they are recording out of St. Louis, Missouri. What up, SDL? Bigfoot King of the Forest is hosted by Jeff and Sarah, and they are talking all about the big ape on campus himself, and they are out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And of course, we've got Macabre London, hosted by Nikki Druce, who has just about the greatest voice of all time. Join her to learn all about the haunted history of one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Okay, without further ado, time for Joe to take us home. Thanks for being a part of Conspiracy Theories, Part 2. All right. Your turn. All right. All it's, right. It's my turn. Yay. Hey. So you know how crazy it is to think that maybe Paul is a clone? Yeah. Yes. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I think it's pretty realistic, but... Well, I'm going to talk about how the United States government introduced crack cocaine into black communities in America in the 1980s. Damn! That's Damn! not cra- that's not crazy at all. Damn! That's not that's actually that's not what I'm talking about. I don't really it's part of it. I don't really know like what to entitle what I'm talking about. Basically, right. I it's a, a sequence of events that begins with the 
Iran hostage cri- crisis in 1979 in uh-huh. Tehran and ends with the crack epidemic in urban cities in America in the 1980s. Okay. Iran to crack, an American tale. Iran That'll be to the crack. name. An American exactly. tale. That's good. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty bonkers. I'm going to get into it. Let's do it. <laughs> so I talked about it a, a little bit on, on the, the first episode. I, I mentioned Oliver North. And uh, which one was Oliver North? Oliver again? North was the National Security Council advisor who I don't remember the context in which I talked about it in the first episode. Wait, Do you? Was he the guy that had like a, a female friend that was killed or was that someone totally different? No, 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 no. That was different. That was, uh, that, was that was that was a guy within the CIA. Okay. Um, I don't know who Oliver North okay, is. OK, so I, well, we're going to we're going to get to Oliver North. But but basically, this is a little bit of a continuation okay. from something I briefly touched on in the first episode. We can edit this whole part out. So basically, just a little refresher here. November 1979, armed, mainly students, storm the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. They take 52 Americans hostage. Those Americans are held in captivity for 444 days Goodness. until January 20th, 1981, which also happens to be the very day in which Ronald Reagan was formally sworn in as the U.S. president. Ronald Reagan plays probably the most central role in all of this. Okay. So okay. in response to this you know, hostage crisis, then sitting president Jimmy Carter imposes an arms embargo, an embargo on everything, but especially armaments on the Iranian government. Um, that's important because prior to the Iranian revolution, the country of Iran, the Shah was the leader. He had basically, there were, you know, decades and decades of friendly relations with the United States. So the Iranian military was all equipped with American made stuff. So they had American trucks, they had American tanks, they had American, American guns, they had all of that Is stuff. Is that why the movie's called American Made? With Tom Cruise. Kind of, yeah. Okay. So that's important because very shortly after they storm the embassy and they take all these American hostages, neighboring Iraq invades Iran and they go through one of the deadliest wars that that region has ever seen. And they're using all these American-made weapons. Yeah. And now there's, a, now there's a new embargo on all of this stuff because they took Americans hostage, yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. So this is, uh, it, right off the bat, a pretty sticky situation. Oh, yes. So Reagan takes over as president. The embargo continues on the grounds that Iran supports terrorism, terrorist groups, namely Hezbollah. However, very shortly after taking office, a group of senior Reagan administrative officials conduct a then-secret study in July of 1981 that asserts that the embargo should ultimately be lifted on Iran for multiple reasons. One, that the Iranian government could easily just use a third party to replace all of these American weapons because America was selling their weapons to like half of the world at that point. Mm -hmm. So it was basically, they're still going to get our stuff, but we're not going to get any of the money for it. And also they were worried about, you know, further, you know, rebuffing of the, the Iranian government would not only exacerbate the hostage situation. Oh, I guess that had actually ended, but basically they were worried about Iran falling under the Soviet sphere. Okay. In that part of the world, because this is still Cold War, you yeah. know, Cold War Central. Halfway around the world, at the same time that all of this is going on, the U.S. trying to figure out, you know, how to handle this Iran situation, the uh, Nicaraguan government is toppled. And they are toppled by a, a communist organization, a communist political party known as the Sandinista National Liberation Front, or just Sandinistas which is also the title of a pretty kick-ass Clash album. But (laughs) anyway, um, you know, at this time, you got to remember that there is nothing that America and Americans fears more than communism. Not jihadists, terrorists. That's true. Not drugs. Not, you know, the the then Negro American, like, it was the 80s, but I mean, still, they bad bad stuff. So basically, communism, you say communism and people are, you know, red alert immediately. Yeah. So now there's a new communist government in basically just, you know, a, a, a stone's throw from Florida, basically. Too I know, close. I know Nicaragua's Too close for comfort. Geography buff listeners, but very close in the Americas. And that's close enough. So it kicks off a civil war in Nicaragua, spans 10 years uh, serves as a key proxy war between the United States and the Soviet Union in the waning days of the Cold War. 
So in direct opposition to the Sandinistas were a group called the Contras, and they were a group of right-wing rebels from Nicaragua, as well as neighboring Panama and Honduras, who stirred against communism, but not exactly on the side of democracy. They mm. were really bad people, but they weren't communists, which made them America's Heroes. allies. Friends. Even though they had Friends. their own countless human rights violations and terrorist attacks and Doesn't murders. Matter. It's fine. They're not communists. Not well, communists. it's interesting because in the of the Reagan administration, they were like, "Hey, these these could be our these are our allies." But in the eyes of Congress, these were blatant human rights violations. So Congress passes the Boland Amendments, a series of amendments that outlaw U.S. assistance to the Contras in their war against the communist Sandinistas. So the first amendment signed into law by Reagan in '82 because he was pressured into doing it. He had mm-hmm. to. And then he signed the end one at the end of 1984. And by that time, all U.S. funding for the Contra cause had dried up. So on one side of the world, we have the Iranian revolution. On the other side of the world, we have a group of communists fighting a group of right-wing rebels in Central America. How are the two connected? How are they connected? Well, things really kick into high gear between 1984 and 85 during the Lebanese Civil War, which was another nasty one. Seven Americans, along with dozens of other expats, were taken hostage by uh, the Lebanese group Hezbollah. So now the Reagan administration, on top of not being able to support their anti-communist friends in Nicaragua or figure out what the hell to do with the situation in Iran, now there are more American hostages that are being held. So they go rogue. Devised uh, in a scheme, basically, initially... Israel was used as the go-between, trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to, you know, settle this situation? So initially the plan was we're going to have Israel sell their armaments to Iran. We are going to, which is crazy to say, because those two, no two countries in the world hate each other more than those right, two right yeah. now. Um, except for maybe India and Pakistan. The, the plan was for Israel to sell their American-made armaments to Iran the United States would then reimburse their their Hebrew buddies in Israel and nobody would be everybody would be none the wiser. Right. Basically. Um, But Israel is very quickly removed from the equation very shortly after launching this initial resupply. The goal of which being to get Iran to convince Hezbollah, who basically does what the ayatollah tells them to do even though Mm -hmm. they're from a different country they they follow radical islam jihadist islam basically that was the plan so oliver north who is a senior national security council advisor at that time and a united states military lieutenant colonel and his direct supervisor admiral john poindexter devised this plan to use international arms dealers and other foreign governments like the sultan of brunei for example to through a third party, sell weapons to more moderate factions of the Iranian government themselves without congressional approval or Congress's knowledge or the knowledge of the American just people. Under the table. Just totally on the on the down low, gonna be doing this. And the assist insistence that Hezbollah convinces uh, or that Iran convinces Hezbollah to release these hostages. Furthermore, Oliver North himself again ingeniously suggests, hey, he's literally referred to this at his own congressional hearing, that he thought it was a, quote, neat idea, the following. He the, said neat The words idea? he said was I, a neat idea. That's uh, that really neat, I, that neat. neat idea being to take these newly acquired, illicit $37 million in funds from this arms deal that they got from Iran, in addition to getting their hostages released, and taking that black money and just giving it to the Contras. Why not? It's already Why black the money. Hell not? Why not just give it to our buddies? We can circumvent the Boland Amendment. We can do this. But they actually have a better idea because $37 million to any one of the three of us in this room is like retire, never have to work another oh, yeah. day in our life. Best money we'd ever $37 seen. million when it comes to funding a war is like, that's, that's nothing. That's chump change. That's like a month of war in the 1980s if you are a poor Central American. Which country. is crazy. You yeah. know, it's $37 million is chump change. So instead, they take uh, that $37 million and they, again, secretly fund their new wing within the Department of National, this National Security Council, which, as I mentioned in the last episode, formed under Truman in 1947 beyond congressional reproach. 
Remember that? They're like they're off the books. They just how don't Congress even know. has oh, no yeah. say. That's how they. Thing. That's how they like in court legally justified doing this because they basically just took verbiage from some trade agreement and said, "Well, the National Security Council is technically not a part of this anyway." They take this thirty-seven million dollars and they fund their own branch called the Enterprise, secret wing of the organization. They get their own planes. They get their own pilots. They get their own airfields. They get their own ships. They get their own Swiss bank accounts. And beginning in 1985, along with assistance from their CIA operative buddies in Central and South America, the enterprise begins working as a drug-running intermediary for the Contras in the allied Panamanian government led by general and dictator Manuel Noriega. Why? Why? Money? Because this is how they are going to achieve, the Reagan administration being they, this is how they are going to fund, illegally, discreetly fund the Contras to defeat the communist Sandinistas in their own sphere of the world. Because we hate communism. In in the ongoing Cold War. Yes. How are we going to do this? Congress, the damn Congress isn't getting us the money we need to support these, you know, uber right wing murderers who, hey, at least they're not communists. And they're basically saying, okay, $37 million isn't going to do you any good. So we're going to take this money that's already black money, it's already off the books, and we are going to help you sell your Nicaraguan and Panamanian cocaine in the United States so you can fund yourself. You can fund your own war. And with the United States government not only looking the other way, but actively aiding you, in this enterprise, saying, Go for there's, it. there's no way that you could possibly lose this conflict yeah. because the Coke market in fail. the United States is thriving town. at yeah, this point What year in time. was this? 85? 1985. Yeah. So just Hot bed. balls to, balls to the wall Coke. thriving. This, this is the point. part that's in the movie American Made, right? Yes. I didn't think exactly. I was going to. I was is, like, everything you're saying, I'm like, I see Tom Cruise in his plane. This is the movie American Made. I and and the, the why they were doing this was so the Contras could fund themselves and defeat the communists. Okay, go. That's basically them. it. It actually winds up having some negative effects initially from the United States government standpoint. They don't raise as much money as they had anticipated they were going to be able to raise because of basic economics that everybody overlooks. With the U.S. government aiding and looking the other way, factions within the U.S. government, they flood the market with product. Like even Coke Mad 1985 America has ne- has way more cocaine than the people who can actually afford cocaine can right. actually do. So basic law of bull versus bear economics, they create a bear market where their supply is vastly outweighing the demand, which makes prices plummet. Mm. because you have to sell so you have to try to make the product available right. to more people so you have to continuously lower the price of it that along with the united states's you know war against uh pablo escobar mm-hmm. in colombia the united states had just that year convinced the colombian government to outlaw ether because ether is a crucial component in the process that takes you know like the, the coca plant basically and forms, you know, helps it turn into its snortable form. Right. So ether is illegal in Colombia now. So the producers around the world, Panama, Nicaragua, Colombia, Bolivia, they have to kind of get with the times. So they start adding baking soda to the mix and Ooh. basically turning a new product called crack. It's oh, the advent of and crack that's cocaine. How crack came around. Yeah. So is it healthier than cocaine or less healthy than cocaine? Because it has the baking soda. Uh, less healthy than cocaine. But it's so good for your teeth. Go on. That's right. Uh, yeah. You can rub so it on your gums. basically, uh, you combine baking soda with cocaine. <laughs> the end result is a product that is smokable, which gets in your bloodstream faster, which leads to a faster and more powerful high. It also ensures that producers and dealers can stretch stretch their initial product for longer due to, you know, cutting the product. Also, the fact that one can smoke far less crack to achieve a high comparable to doing like an unbelievable amount of cocaine. And this opens up the cocaine trade, once almost exclusively dependent on rich people, to virtually anybody in the country who wants to get high. And this is the part where we're kind of shifting, at least temporarily, away from Contra and into 
now here is how crack gets into the United States and yeah. what it does. So in 1985, a user could purchase a single hit of crack for $2.50, which in today's no. money is still less than $6. Yeah. You think about how much cocaine actually costs to actually like buy I don't know. cocaine. Well, basically, it's cocaine is, you know, buying the amount of cocaine that it would take to get, you know, the high that you're looking for. It's basically like 10 times cheaper than cocaine. And it's a stronger high. And basically now anybody who wants to get high can do it except for other than just rich people who can we're basically doing coke to that point. 250 per hit and one hit can actually get you pretty high because this is extremely high. Okay. Pretty high. Like get you really high for hours. Okay. Like crazy high. Very different. So so this now, you know, opens the market uh, up to, you know, really poor communities, which in America uh, have primarily predominantly been Mm -hmm. African-American, which is why the crack epidemic hit black neighborhoods the hardest. So hard. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to, I mean, South Central LA in particular was just like ripe for the picking as far as a a drug epidemic. I mean, white flight starting in the late Mm sixties had taken the majority of the industry out of the neighborhoods. So there's really like no jobs in the area. Uh, The public schools are horribly underfunded. Mm -hmm. So once you introduce something as powerful and addictive as crack into that environment, it just, it turned into a war. Like South Central literally turned into a war zone at that point. Even people who refrained from partaking in either selling or using were just being continuously regularly gunned down in the streets like lost in the midst of the violence that was going on in the new crack trade so scary so you hear people say that crack was introduced into the black neighborhoods of this country by the federal government or by the cia or by the nsc or by whomever and it's 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 not a, a direct thing. It's not like, oh, like government agents were just walking around South Central LA just like handing out free samples of crack. It's not that overt. In a way, it would be better if that if it were that overt because of the way that the Reagan administration then handles the crack epidemic that they themselves created Started. in this country. And that's the part that I'm going to get to right now. So in 1985... In the year in which Oliver North and the Enterprise first began their operation, national cocaine-related hospital emergencies rose by 12%. Wow. The following year, they increased by 110%. Shut up. 110% from 26,000 the previous year to 55,000 the following year. A 110% increase in one year. In Los Angeles, between 1985 and 1989, the murder rate amongst black males aged 14 to 17, as well as 18 to 24, more than doubled. Oh, my God. This all conspired to create a more militarized policing of the afflicted, predominantly black neighborhoods as part of Reagan's war on drugs, created by none other than Ronald Reagan himself, the man who, you know, pretty much it totally opened the door up now reagan goes on in later years to say that i knew we were trade i gotta do my reagan impression i knew that we were doing but i didn't know that he basically just does the politician thing yeah you know i didn't inhale yeah based yeah exactly i didn't inhale so the way that the u.s government then decides to handle the crack epidemic with crack booming in major cities around america the government issues a 100 to 1 decree for the possession or trafficking of crack versus the penalties for trafficking or possessing regular powder cocaine. Not even just like marijuana or nothing, like literal cocaine. What is 100 to 1, you ask? Well, that's basically federal law mandating a 10-year sentence. It's, It's basically a punishment that is 100 times more strict for crack-related offenses than cocaine-related offenses. Oh, okay, so it poor stood, people. It, it stood yep. for three decades. Oh, let's go yeah. for the poor people. It stood for three decades. Basically, federal oh law God. mandated a 10-year sentence for being caught with 50 grams of crack. That's roughly the weight of a candy bar. You would get a 10-year prison sentence for being in possession for the weight of a candy bar's worth of crack cocaine. To get a comparable prison sentence... 
someone caught with regular old cocaine would have to be in possession of 5,000 grams, enough to fill a suitcase. <laughs> That's batshit. So here's where the racial profiling and the racial component of that 100 to 1 decree comes in. 1991, a study found that roughly 75% of cocaine users were white, while 79% of sentenced crack users were black. In 1980, there were three times as many black men in college as there were in prison. By the year 2000, black incarceration rates had risen by 500%, with there being 188,000 more black men in prison than enrolled in college. More than 60% of those enrolled in federal prison are there on drug charges. Blacks are incarcerated at a rate six times higher than that of whites, and are given sentences 20% longer than their white peers for the same crime. And this is all without getting into the 13th Amendment, which was instituted in 1863 as part of the Civil War, the emancipation and aboli- the emancipation of slaves and the abolition of slavery, except in the case of those having been convicted of a crime and serving a federal prison term. who can be subjected to basically whatever work conditions imaginable for whatever rate of pay the prison system feels like drumming up. There are no unions for prison labor. And that's where you get the prison for profit that we have in system, as well as a motivating system for incarcerating blacks because, you know, for every inmate you have at a prison, you get an additional tax break in that system. And I admit that Prior to to doing a bunch of research on this, you know, I had I had read and I had heard that we had this conversation. We did about a week and a half ago about how prisoners around the country were basically like going on hunger strikes and were speaking out against the wages that they were being paid for their jobs in prison. And I being a, you know, being an ignorant white man was basically like, I'm sure that these guys are in some conditions that are less than ideal and should definitely be better. But like the thought of people who had been incarcerated for a federal crime complaining about their rate of pay while they were in prison, it just like it it, it like it initially rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. I was I was immediately like, I don't understand how people in federal penitentiary can complain about how much they get paid. I think that's probably something that a lot of people who like me previously who don't know much about this that that would be their initial reaction right yeah. to this yeah that's normal until you learn about things like you know the incarceration rate for blacks for drug related offenses and why they're given sentences in double digits so that they can then basically circumvent the 13th amendment and send these guys to prisons like angola in louisiana where prisoners work up to 15 hours a day farming okra farming corn, farming, you guessed it, cotton, Mm -hmm. on an old plantation that used to house slaves, where to this day, the guards ride around the prison on horseback with rifles. What? And the inmates are paid four cents an hour while working in these conditions. It's It it really is... It's slavery. It's modern day slavery. I was just going to say, it's absolutely slavery. That is so sad and And they get away with it by saying they had an ounce of crack on them in 1985. Yeah. And so you get get 10 years. Uh, So like I said, the prisoners make 40 cents an hour. The prison itself earns $55 a day for For the prisoner. For housing these prisoners. Yeah. And also the guards at the prison are referred to as free men. That's like the formal jargon. For their free men. We're the free men. You know, the racial disparity doesn't even end there. It can currently be seen in the opioid crisis that's wreaking havoc on the country. But this time, this drug epidemic is mainly hitting working class white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So when you turn on My the news, you see these very sympathetic news stories about these good, honest working class individuals who are addicted to these opioids and how we need to help them. And Mm -hmm. we do need to help them. I couldn't possibly agree more. And uh, in response to this, the U S health department has recently established a five point plan to fight the epidemic to improving access to treatment and recovering services, 
promoting the use of overdose-reversing drugs and outfitting police officers with the counter drug, strengthening our understanding of the epidemic through better mm-hmm. health surveillance, providing support for cutting-edge research on pain addiction, all of these really, really wonderful things. And now contrast that to the way that the media covered the crack epidemic in black America in the 1980s and the way that those people were policed and the way that law-abiding citizens who had nothing to do with crack, who happened to live in South Central, literally had military police batter their doors in, throw them on the ground, in many cases shoot them when they, you know, moved too quickly after being scared that their battering, that their door was just knocked down with a battering ram while they watched Jeopardy. Horrified, yeah. You know, and the way that the news media covered it back then, just drumming up fear in white, just once again making white Americans afraid yeah. of Black Americans. You're lucky yeah. you don't live crazy in Black Americans and their crack cocaine just flying off the handle. Yeah. Thank God you don't live around here. So thirty years later, here we are with a new epidemic on our hands. We have the most sympathetic possible response from the U.S. government. And from the Trump government. I mean, this new public health initiative, this Mm -hmm. is under the Trump administration to do all of these things for these nice working class white men who are addicted to drugs. Just have a bad addiction. While while we're still giving black drug users double digit sentences for possessing a candy bars worth of crack cocaine because they're addicted to that drug. A drug that came into this country because of the Reagan administration. Ronald Reagan, the most revered figure in conservative America is him and his government. Whether you believe that Ronald Reagan had direct knowledge of the drug money aspect of Iran-Contra or not, it came in on his watch. Yeah. Yeah. Ronald Reagan and his administration are responsible for the influx of crack cocaine into black communities in America in the 1980s. If they didn't know about it, they didn't ask enough questions. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Because they were turning away. Because they were already... They were getting what they wanted. Well, the thing is, they were already deliberately... Deliberately, like, skirting these regulations that had been put in place by the checks and balances system that we have in this country with congressional approval and the you know the 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 CIA can't involve itself in this and no government agency and then oh well the national security council is technically beyond congressional reproach so so basically so do you want to know what happened to some of the key figures who were involved in Iran Contra before before I wrap this up yes Ronald Reagan, literally fucking nothing. Ronald Reagan was absolved of any wrongdoing by an organization that he himself established to look into his own actions. That's fucking true. Well, that's happening right now with Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Exactly what's happening. Exactly. It's like, well, if I'm going to be. Hey, it's a tried and true playbook. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm going to be put through this trial, I get to choose my judge. Yeah. And you can choose everything about it. You, the listener, if you are curious, you can go and you can see the the sequence of uh, State of the Union addresses that uh, that Ronald Reagan made during this period in time where he first comes out and em- emphatically denies that these allegations are, are true. And then he says, all right, I was unaware of the fact that this was going on, but this part of it is untrue. And then he goes on a third time and says, oh, I it's with a heavy heart, you know, basically that I I, I was acting with my best intentions and what I thought to be true Sadly, the evidence that has recently just come across my desk suggests that that may not be the case. It's like the evidence that came across your desk, like you're talking about yourself. Right. You're talking about what you did. Yeah, exactly. Um, So basically, the only thing that happened to him was that he was basically like scolded by this own committee that he himself started, as well as the U.S. Justice Department, Justice Department. Where they basically say, like, all right, well, we don't think you knew, but you should have known. Shame mm-hmm. on you. Hey. Insufficient supervision of your subordinates or awareness of their actions is the yep. actual verbiage yeah. that was used. Jeez. So basically, you didn't know, so we technically can't punish you, but you should have known. All right. Mm-hmm. Good talk. All right. We're done here. All right. Have good a talk. Good on the wrist. So how about we throw those blacks in jail for 15 years because we got them addicted to crack? Great idea. Uh, Oliver North. I, I mentioned this on, on the last episode. So he's the guy who's at ground zero 
of Iran-Contra, and he's also at ground zero of the outing of Iran-Contra, the reason this, that this became public knowledge. So first, a senior official in Iran's military leaked this arrangement to a Lebanese magazine in the immediate aftermath of an American airship being shot down over Nicaragua by Sandinista forces. Mm. So the pilot was a man by the name of Eugene Hazenfuss. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, He's a former U.S. Marine pilot who had been honorably discharged, who alleged that two of his passengers who were killed in the crash were CIA operatives working for the Contras with U.S. government backing. This was extracted during his own interrogation by the Sandinistas. So then after they sent him back to the United States, he's like, oh, they 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 coerced it out of me. Mm. I didn't actually I didn't actually mean that. Then Oliver North's secretary incorrectly inputs the number of the Swiss bank account that he had given her to deposit a $10 million donation in funds from the Sultan of Brunei. The money randomly appears in the bank account of a Swiss citizen who immediately notifies Swiss and U.S. authorities. Why? Who then follow the paper trail. I'd be like, oops. Less than a month. Someone made a whoopsie. Yep. So now... Eyebrows are raised. Now people are kind of like, hey, something's not right here. We're going to look into this. This is people who are outside of the National Security Council. Yeah. And Reagan's inner circle. So less than a month after the plane was downed in Nicaragua, Oliver North and his assistant destroyed all White House documents detailing the the operations. They both admitted to this. In, at a congressional hearing. This isn't like, yeah, and then they, they shredded the have. papers. No, they both admitted to doing this. Yeah. Shredding all of, all of the paperwork that had that was on basically White House stationery or addressed to the White House about all of these dealings to try to kind of dive on the grenade for the president himself. North was indicted on 16 felony counts. He was convicted of three. However, all of his convictions were subsequently overturned. And he was absolved of any wrongdoing in this, even though literally all of this was his doing. Yeah. He was the point man on all of this. He then got his own Fox News show for 15 years. Oh. And he's now the president of the NRA. Of course. America, America, sell weapons to Iran and fund drug dealers in Nicaragua, and then get absolved of any wrongdoing, and then get your own Fox News show, and then make millions of dollars as a lobbyist piece of shit. Beautiful. That's cool. How about these guys? Elliot <laughs> so Abrams. Cool. So that's cool. Elliot Abrams, Dwayne Claridge, Alan Fires, Claire George, who's a man. I looked into it. Claire. Robert McFarlane and Casper Weinberger. Is it a Wein- man or is it a fish? It's a man. Good one. Nice callback. <laughs> and Casper Weinberger, all senior officials associated with Iran Contra, all of whom had admitted to and were convicted of felonious conduct, were all pardoned by George H.W. Bush during his last days as president in 1992, right before Bill Clinton became president. And just for a very quick history lesson, in case you don't know, George H.W. Bush was previously Ronald Reagan's vice president during all of Iran-Contra and previously was the director of the CIA. Mm -hmm. Uh, When Bush himself was on the campaign trail in 1988, he denied any knowledge of Contra in spite of the fact that in his own journal, his own personal journal, in his own handwriting... He wrote in his journal to himself and to no one else because it's his journal <laughs> that he was one of the few people who knew all the details of Iran-Contra. Oops. Again, in his own journal, in his own handwriting, he refused to answer any questions on the subject during his campaign to the presidency, and he then won the presidential election in a then unprecedented historical landslide. And... Ugh. What college did he go to? Yale, motherfucker, where and all the CIA cunts go. Yeah, what skull society and was Skull bones and Bones. Talking about Skull and Bones, miss. <laughs> yes, that oh. was my favorite when we talked about that. Oh, but it continues. Amiram Nir was the senior most counterterrorism advisor in Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Perez's cabinet during the early days of Iran Contra. Remember how I had said that in the early days Iran was or I'm sorry Israel was used as an intermediary oh, yeah. Yeah. between the two or attempted to right uh, so yes well they 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 ran early missions basically okay. where what they did was it was twofold they 
did what I said. They took their own U.S. armaments, sold them to Iran. They were then reimbursed right. by the United States government on the down low. They also took a massive cache of weaponry that they had seized from the PLO, from the Palestinian Liberation Army, their own primary enemy of yeah. the day and today, for that matter, <laughs> and gave them to the United States as kind of like a goodwill. Yeah. Because Shimon Let's Perez had just gotten nice. He had just gotten into office and it was a really it was really important to him to bolster Israel's relations with the United States. Because right. he was basically like, We're surrounded by people who hate us. For the record, I gotta say this, I am Jewish, but I'm like the furthest thing you could possibly find from a Zionist. So as far as like the state of Israel and whatnot, I, I kind of think they're all Nazis now. <laughs> just putting that out there. Yeah. Because I think it's really staggering how many Jews, such as myself, can so frequently reference the Holocaust and then just like look at what's going on in the West Bank and Gaza and, and just be like, head. oh, well, they're dogs. Yep. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty it's telling amazing. when the, you know, when the when the hair becomes the fox, so to speak. So anyway, early days of Iran-Contra, Israel involved. This guy, Amir Amnon, senior most counterterrorism advisor in the prime minister's cabinet, when the incident all goes public in the weight of, you know, the Swiss bank account and the gunship being shot down and whatnot, Nir is, is told by the Israeli government, you're not allowed to speak on this matter. Like, anybody asks you anything, you're, you say, I am not at liberty to divulge, blah, 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 basically all of that. While this is going on, Oliver North then initially, before admitting to being the point man on all this, tries to throw this guy, Amiram Nir, under the bus and says this was his brainchild. Like, we didn't know what we were doing. We thought we were giving Israel money to blah, 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 bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. So Nir, who has had a gag order placed on them, he decides, I'm going to reach out to Bob Woodward, the guy who, you oh, know, yeah. obviously, you know, deep throat exposed mm -hmm. Watergate. Love him. Just today had his book Fear, Trump in the I White House. Just, just say, came out yeah. literally today. Yeah. So it's kind of serendipitous there as well that we're talking about this. I know. He reaches Today. out to so Bob good. Woodward and says, hey, I've got some shit. We'll call it Iran Gate. In your professional expert opinion, what's the best way that I go about selling this story, navigating the various pitfalls, etc.? 22 days after George Herman Walker Bush is elected president, Amiram Nears plane crashes off the coast of Mexico. His Cessna civilian aircraft, literally 22 days after he was elected. He wasn't even in office yet. President. Right. Yeah. And this guy's President plane crashes just south of the United States. Interesting. Basically. Oh, that's weird. Huh. To this day, Amir Amnir's son is convinced that the United States and the CIA are responsible for his father's death. Yeah, and so am I. I mean, if, they are. If you are interested, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of really cool shit that this guy himself has written sure. about the his matter. son. His son, Amir Amnir's son, that he has written about the matter. Some pretty fascinating reads, reads there. What, Finally, what happened with Bob Woodward? <clears throat> what did Bob Woodward tell him to do? I don't know. Oh, he probably said, don't probably get said, on any Don't planes. tell anybody anything. Yeah. Just wait. Stay wait in a bunker. Do not get any don't planes. Plane. Don't eat any food that you didn't eat. Cook yourself. Yeah, you know, exactly. Watch out. So uh, finally, we have the story of Gary Webb. Gary Webb had previously won a Pulitzer Prize as part of the writing team for the uh, San Jose Mercury Times. They won for their coverage of the earthquake, okay. the 1989 Bay Earthquake. Earthquake, you know, the one that killed a bunch of people mm -hmm. and, you know, halted the World Series and destroyed like billions of dollars of infrastructure. Yeah. Which um, one of those is the worst for you? Oh, come on. The, the, the deaths. Then the World then Series. The World Series. Then, then the World the, Series. Because it was a San Francisco. It was the Bay. It was the, it was a San Francisco, Oakland World Series. I know. Yeah. Can you believe it? But you just, I think you just ignored what I just said. Where was the earthquake? In the Bay Area. And the World Series was between the San Francisco Giants yeah. and the Oakland A's. Uh -huh. It was just the Bay World Series. Anyway, <laughs> we'll talk about this later after Lauren goes home. Yeah, please. Uh, the story of Gary Webb. So, yeah, I don't want to be in the middle of this fight. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. And he wrote in the San Jose Mercury Times a series called Dark Alliance. And this is the genesis or the inception of the idea that the Reagan administration and the CIA and the National Security Council are responsible for the crack epidemic 
in the United States. He was the first one to kind of He was the first one to actually write about it. The like the absolute first one in claiming that Contra rebels had played a chief role in the trade specifically in Los Angeles that they acted with the knowledge and protection of the CIA. Uh, much of the series focuses on three dealers in particular, namely uh, Freeway Rick Ross, who the rapper Rick Ross took his name after, and Oscar Danilo Blandone, who was an exiled Nicaraguan who had previously worked in the Department of Agriculture under the regime that was ousted by the Sandinistas. He then just turned into like cocaine drug runner kingpin. Right. Basically, upon being uh, finally arrested in 1992. He had told the arresting officials that he had CIA protection and that they had been allowing him to sell unimpeded for nearly a decade. Following his arrest, he was sentenced to time served. He turned DEA informant, was released from custody to better facilitate his new job with the DEA, and was, for the first time since landing on American soil over 10 years prior, was granted immediate and permanent citizenship. Oh, that's how you get it. While, while Freeway do. Rick Ross, who, as you might have guessed, was a black man. Uh-huh. Of course. He went to prison. Yeah. For, for a very long sounds time. Sounds about right, wow. unfortunately. Yeah, and in uh, subsequent government follow-ups, it was alleged by other various government, U.S. government bodies that the way that he had obtained his green card was incorrect, misleading and downright insane was the actual quote was basically just like he was just it was just given to him like literally nothing was done he was basically just like an admittance of the fact that this guy had been working with cia protection and was now helping another government agency and just basically had carte blanche to just go back to selling drugs as long as he ratted out other drug dealers um, so following the release of the oh it gets this better just following the Web. following the release of the Dark Times Alliance remember how I talked in the last episode listeners <laughs> about Operation Mockingbird yeah and the in the, the CIA CIA's operate, documented yeah. installation of their own operatives into various news agencies around yeah. the country as a way of controlling the flow and the tenor of what gets published. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when what gets published in general? Well, this Pulitzer Prize winning journalist has his entire newspaper, all his senior editors, all of his co-workers, people who worked with him at previous news agencies that he worked with, all go to bat for him as a journalist. They're like, this guy is a machine. He is by the book. He doesn't print it if it's not corroborated by multiple sources, yada, yada, yada. So... The story gets picked up by bigger newspapers in the country, the Washington Post, the LA News- Times, pa- newspapers the, the New York Times. Millions of people read. The mm-hmm. big ones, basically. And not one of these newspapers delves into the actual story that he provides about the, the, the various actual like names that he uses and statements that he has received and printed and following the money and the paper trail and all of this. And all of these newspapers start writing their own articles about basically poking holes in his method of news gathering and his character. And they basically just all conspire with one another to discredit this guy and thereby discrediting his story and burying the story itself entirely. So they force the San Jose Mercury News to publish a retraction to his entire story, as well as an apology. Webb is discredited, shamed, and despite all of the assertions from his own editors that he had done all of this properly, as well as the support of California Senator Barbara Boxer, California Representative Maxine Waters, Webb is forced to resign in shame. And then in 2004... He committed suicide by shooting himself in the head mm. twice. Well, twice. As you do. You, well, if you, that's pretty normal. Yeah. As you do. It's like, just in case. Yeah. Oh, well, that first one, I don't know if it took, so let me try again. Yeah. Because I'm completely. Yep. Shot himself in the head twice at the very end of that. So, in summation, we have a story of uh, an American president who trades. Uh, Missiles and weapons and armaments for hostages, illegally circumventing a congressionally placed trade embargo, 
Then in the immediate aftermath of that, we have the establishment of a basically a sub wing within within the National Security Council, which is already operating without congressional approach. They immediately take the proceeds from their illegal arms deals to fund a right wing paramilitary group in Central America whose own human rights violations and countless murders have led to their own embargo placed on them by the United States Congress, which the Reagan administration, again, deliberately circumvents. Then that same government not only allows Nicaraguan and Paraguayan drug dealers to send massive amounts of cocaine into the United States, but they actually fly the planes themselves while paying their own customs agents to look the other way, all while publicly embarking on the war on drugs, giving police in inner city America the right to take machine guns and tanks and battering rams into the homes of black Americans, regardless of whether or not there was any substantial evidence, you know, that would suggest that maybe there's crack in this house other than, hey, black people live here and we're in South Central. The United States then institutes an embargo on ether, which leads to the production of crack cocaine, whose incredibly low prices hit poor black neighborhoods, the hardest of all. Then the same government that floods their own country with cocaine and crack institutes racially motivated countermeasures to combat the epidemic, treating crack users, not even dealers, as though they were murders, murderers, by instituting mandatory sentencings on possession charges that are literally a hundred times more harsh than those levied upon the predominantly white users doing virtually the same drug, coupled with mainstream media hit pieces on the dissolution of black communities, drumming up even more fear of blacks within white communities. And now, 30 years later, with another drug epidemic on our hands involving white people, we have our government bending over backwards for all of these new health measures to treat these people to help them out. while the media talks about these poor white Americans addicted to these opioids. Wow. And that is our picker upper is of the episode. Your it excuse was very light to, to lose hope story. Oh my gosh. That's so sad and disgusting. Yeah. There should be, I'm going to do your, your warning for this episode. Like warning. This episode contains foul language and some incredibly depressing racist ass shit. Yeah. Grab your Kleenex. I mean, it's it's happening even right now. I mean, Cynthia Nixon is talking about it in New York City, how yeah. how weed has been legal for white people in New York City for uh, ever, forever. Yeah. yeah. It's always been legal for white yeah. people. It's never a problem. You know, what, you know what happens to you when the cops find you uh, a young white youth with weed on you? Nothing. They take your weed and they take whatever it is that you're smoking it out of and they put it on the ground and they crush it underneath their standard issue military boot. And they tell you to smarten up and get lost. Like, get out of here, That's, kid. That, that, that That's literally it. happened to me. Really? Where it was basically just like, came up to the car that me and my buddies were smoking pot in, in a supermarket parking lot. What up, stop and shop? <laughs> and we were too busy getting high and having fun to in know. the car. And all of a sudden, the cop who had silently, you know, pulled his cruiser up with the lights off behind us in the dark, turned his lights on. And, you know, we all did our best to, like, you know, light cigarettes play cool, and, play like, cool. play cool and hide the weed. And he came up and he was like, hey, guys, um, so I know you're smoking weed. Just give me the weed. Give me all the weed. Give me what you're smoking it out of right now. And we did. And he took the license and registration of the person who was driving and ran their information. To make sure that they didn't And came back to the car. And made us watch him break, break the pipe it. on the ground, on the floor. And he told us to smarten up and to stop smoking this shit and to get out of here. That was it. That was literally it. That honestly would not have happened if we were black. No, Absolutely you didn't even have not. to get out of the car. You would have had to have gotten out of the car, I didn't have hit to the spread ground. My butt cheeks. You didn't have to show no. your hands. You'd have to nope. show. Didn't have to, you know, show my hands at all times or no. spread my butt cheeks. Be or... on the ground being screamed at, being pushed down. Yep. Yep. None of it's that. It was crazy. just like, give me the weed, give me the, which is, you know, in, in all honesty, how we should, you know, just treat everybody. I'm not suggesting that I should also 
be thrown on the ground and no. have a knee or a gun pressed into the back no, of my head. No one should. No, no one should. It's ridiculous. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that if you take anything from this, is that take everything, I guess, take everything that you hear, regardless of the source, with a couple hundred thousand grains of salt. And if you're curious, do your own research. And at the end of the day, just acknowledge the fact that black people are treated worse than white people in this country. And they always have. And they are up to and through the very second that I am saying this sentence. There is modern day slavery. Blacks are literally punished depending on you know whether it's crack to cocaine they're punished a hundred times more strongly mm-hmm. than a white person with cocaine or or if they're a black person times. with cocaine versus a white person co- with cocaine they receive a 20 percent longer prison sentence for the exact same crime they are subjected to worse living conditions while in prison and the drug epidemic the crack epidemic that began in this country was literally started under the watch, at least under the watch, of the greatest figure in conservative American political history, and at worst, done so deliberately, as a, as Oliver North would put it, neat idea. Hey, it started with these arms to Iran to get these hostages released, and then it became, well, what about we get the hostages released, we take this money, and then we use this money to help drug dealers sell their product in our country so they can fund their war against the communists, simultaneously giving us an excuse to turn black urban communities into a police state, giving us the authority to impose stricter sentencing and punishments for black Americans for the drugs that we got them hooked on. So that we can have slavery again. So that we can continue to have slavery slavery. and a white country and no communists and everybody wins. Isn't that a neat idea, Oliver North? I hate that he said neat idea. That's why all lives matter. But all lives matter. And now on that note, I'm probably making my last appearance on this podcast. Yeah, you're dead. I am probably going to die. Might, but I have faith. You went out swinging. I have faith that my name and my legacy will carry on. I will be a martyr. <laughs> Absolutely, we will continue to carry on this message for I you. I mean, I'm going to be dead too. And when I, I go talked to about heaven, the Scientologist. I'll get to hang out with Paul McCartney. There you go. Because the real Paul McCartney's already there. Because he's Paul already dead. dead. Paul is oh, dead. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Turn me on, dead man. <laughs> Turn me. On dead man. Okay. This was a long one. <laughs> yes, it was. And this is going to be a nightmare to edit. I'm so sorry. Tis. It's okay. That's all the time we have this week for Keep It Weird. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming on again. Thank for the you. Yay, Joe. Fifth. Fourth. Fourth. Fourth, Fourth time. Official Fourth. time. It's getting difficult now because you're on the mini-sos. You do the mini-sos. So <laughs> now I'm like, it's like many, a million who's times. Winning? Do you have anything to plug? You don't have anything to plug? Anything to plug? Yeah, well, I always ask people if they have anything they want to plug. Oh, but oh, you got oh, rid oh, of I literally all of your social media, so there's not even a handle that yeah, we can plug. No, I'm so. off the grid. All right. He's, He's off, the, off grid. the grid. You can't find <laughs> he him. He also moved just now. He doesn't live here. He has anymore. a new address. No. <laughs> you can't come for him. New I'm phone number. <laughs> calling in via satellite from an undisclosed location. Undisclosed <laughs> bunker. South America. I don't know where he Bleep, is. Bloop, bloop. Uh, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash keepitweirdpodcast to find ways you can donate to the show and get extra goodies like mini sews with Joe and newsletters every other week. Visit our Etsy page at www.etsy.com slash shop slash keepitweirdpodcast. I'm pretty sure that's what it is because we're selling our buttons and our magnets and all kinds of goodies there. Our Twitter and our Instagram are at Keep It Weird Cast, and our Facebook page is simply Keep It Weird. It's very simple. We've got a lot of really, really fun episodes coming up for Halloween after this, whenever this is. Yes, we've got two really fun Halloween thing, yeah. episodes <laughs> coming up this month. 
It should be a lot of fun. Joe, what is our sign off this week? Um, uh, uh, it's not a catchy phrase, but uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, his name, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six letters in his first name, six letters in his middle name, six letters in his last name. Six, 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 Eye of Horus. Eye of Horus. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. All hail Satan. <laughs> We're not supposed to say that. No. Ronald Wilson Wagon. Ronald Wilson Wagon. Horus. Keep it, it weird. weird. <laughs> It's Dude, not want habit no forming. Yeah. You don't want any of this shit, do we? You don't want any of this shit, do we? I kind of reckon I do. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are you doing? Cocaine, do we? Get out of here. You don't want any of this shit. What is it? Takes all your bad feelings and turns them into good feeling. It makes sex amazing or yeah, something. I, I reckon I might want me some of that cocaine. <laughs> Put ex- that on the episode. I'm, Let the world know. I'm bringing the, the I'm bringing the truth expressed into this episode. Oh Enough of this PC garbage. <laughs>